Hey, Walk Church, how are you? you? Do you realize you are a blessed people? The worship ministry of this church is amazing. And I am blessed to pastor a church that has an amazing worship ministry. And, and when you hear music like this and from the heart music like this, it needs to be recorded, it needs to be shared, and it needs to be given to other people. And, and music, the music of a church needs to come out of the church. It doesn't need to come out of a studio someplace with professionals. It needs to come out of what God is doing in the church. And as you do that, God's going to use it to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you keep encouraging all of these people that are giving so much energy and time for the glory of God. Amen? And pray for them to walk humbly before the Lord. Because when you get on this stage, you become a target for the enemy. And so I just encourage you, and I love you, Walk Church. This has been an amazing day. Have you ever gotten a song stuck in your head? I mean, like, like that. that's why this is so important, because songs get stuck in our head. Well, I've been struggling with a song that really is a part of my generation. I grew up in the 70s. I grew up on 70s and 80s music. Anybody else in here? Okay, or you're really hip and young, and you, you've gone back to the 70s and 80s. Amen? There you go. That's where most of you, if you are, would do that. Well, I got this song in my head. Um, by Jackson Brown. Now, Kathy and I had tickets before COVID hit to see James Taylor and Jackson Brown together in New Orleans. Somebody, give me, a, give me an amen. Amen? We're big James Taylor. We, we saw JT at Red Rocks in Denver. We loved some JT. We saw him in Pensacola. He actually was in his RV next to the place. We're trying to find a parking spot. We pull up next to this massive RV. JT, James Taylor, walks out in his bathrobe and slippers. We go, Joe, JT. He goes, hey, how's everybody? It was cool. Okay, anyway, that was, that was then, that was now. Let's get back to this. But I got this song. The biggest hit that Jackson Brown had was interesting, and I'm fascinated by it. Because it was a song that really became a very sad, even though the melody is not. It kind of is confusing. It's called Doctor My Eyes. Come on. Let me read the lyrics. Doctor My Eyes Have Seen the Years. And a slow parade of fears. Without crying, now I want to understand. I have done all that I could. Say along if you know this. To see the evil and the good without hiding. You must help me understand. Phonograph Magazine, which later became Rolling Stone, said it was a song about being almost terminally burnt out. It's a song of questions. It's asking somebody to fix something, somebody to explain something. You cannot explain where we're at as a nation of people. You cannot explain where we're at as a city. You, you cannot explain the times that we're living in. And sometimes music just kind of sets in there and, and helps us at least express what we don't understand. But when our church's response to evil is fear and not faith, Doctor, we need you to check our eyes. Because God did not put us in this city so that we would see the evil around us and see the evil of our generation and hide out in a building called a church. The church is not a building. Listen, I think, I think Walk Church needs to change its motto. It needs to be, if you can find us next Sunday, you can worship with us next Sunday. I mean, we're here, we're there, we're everywhere, amen? Now, you're going to find a place. God's going to give you a place. But I'm just telling you, right now is a time you'll look back as an old person and say, I remember when. 
And I'm going to tell you something else. You'll be able to look back someday and say, I was there when God fell down on this place and God changed this city. And it's not just through one church because this church doesn't think of itself as only one church. This is a kingdom church. Jesus said in the last days there would be terrible times. In Matthew 24, 12, he says, And because of lawlessness and its increase, the love of many will grow cold. Isn't that interesting? When you're afraid for your life, your love grows cold. That's why courage is so important in the Christian life. A cold Christian heart mutes the voice of God. When we shut our heart down on the homeless, the sick, the, the, the depraved, and the wicked, and the, and the victims, and we, we, we shut our heart down because we can't handle it anymore, or it causes us to be afraid, what if I get too close, what if I get hurt, then we cease being the followers of Jesus who intrepidly go wherever he tells us to go. In John 13, 35, Jesus said, and this is called, is an amazing passage of scripture that we call the Great Commandment. You've heard of the Great Commission but it is inseparably linked to this. This is the soul of the Great Commission. It says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. You see, that love is not something we just say. It's not just a heart shape on Facebook or Instagram. It's not just the approval on Twitter. It it is a real living love that helps the least of these, that helps the most of these, that helps the uppers and out, the down and out, that helps everybody in between, that just says, here we are. We're God's people, and we're here to to speak his love and to show his love to you. One of my favorite philosophers probably had as much influence on my early years of ministry as Dr. Francis Schaeffer. Schaeffer was brilliant. He said, love on display is the ch- in the church. Love on display in the church is Jesus' final apologetic to the world. Now, when he says apologetic, I know most of you probably know what that means. It doesn't mean we apologize for the gospel. It means we make an argument for the gospel. So the apologetic he's speaking of is our love one for another. There's a spiritual search underway in America. Do you see that? Do you feel that? It's not just Jackson Brown. People want to know, why are we in this situation? What's the answer? Is there hope? In the book of Romans, and I invite you to open the Word of God, the precious, powerful Word of God, perfect in every way. Romans chapter 12, verse, Romans chapter 12, Paul lays out the theology of God's gospel. I said that this morning. Chapters 1 through 11, he lays out the theology of the gospel. Chapter 12, he's getting practical with this theology. And he offers, he says in chapter 12, verse 1, that we begin the practical application of his theology by offering ourselves as a sacrifice to the Lord. You see, that's a person who's overcome the fear. The fear from engagement, the fear that I might get hurt. It's the person who finds by the grace of God and the Spirit of God the courage to to maybe volunteer for something they've never volunteered for. To go to talk to someone you've never witnessed to before to share the gospel and the love of Jesus with someone. You see, the next five verses, Paul challenges the church to love both inside and outside. Back to those lyrics by by Jackson Brown. He said, Doctor, my eyes, they cannot see the sky. Is this the price for having learned how not to cry? Help me here. Has the church learned how not to cry? in a world that is broken and desperately in need of Jesus? Have we learned how to sing louder? 
when the trains that would take the Jewish people of Germany to the concentration camps would pull up next to a church on a Sunday morning, they could hear inside the church on the railroad tracks while the train's waiting for something to clear down the road so they could begin moving those people to their doom. They could hear the people crying out. They could look through the, the lattices of those, those railroad cars. They could see the worshipers inside their churches. They said, help us, help us. And the, the music minister would say, play louder. We must hear the cries of the desperate around us. We must love one another, and we must love them. Have we, the church in America, learned how not to cry? Look at Romans 12. Let's look at the verse, the passages, verses 9 through verse 13. Lord, bless your word. He says, let your love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in your zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. My, my, my. So Paul gives us six love directives. Six love directives. Write them down. Give them somewhere. Put them in your Bible. Put them on your, uh, on your notepad, on your, on your iPhone, or whatever you're using. A directive, by the way, is a powerful, assertive command. Paul gives us six love directives. Number one, he said, love genuinely. He said, let love be genuine. The word for love is agape, the Greek word. Uh, the Greeks had words for every kind of love imaginable. They had love for sexual love, eros. They had love for family love, phileo. They had, they had love for brotherly love, philos. But agape is a God kind of love because only God can utterly love us completely, perfectly, without false motives. And so God loves us completely, regardless of our circumstances, and his love remains deliberate and purposeful. Probably the, the greatest damage right now for many of us who do anything in social media, is the fact that Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and TikTok are image projectors. They are image projectors. They're not who we are. They're who we want people to think we are. And so we project an image. We, we don't take a picture of ourselves, you know, when I wake up in the morning, I got a hair, it looks like I got a horn over here and a horn over there and I look like the devil. We don't take that picture and we put it on Instagram. We put the best pictures, the best shots. We'll take 20 shots till we get the right one. I go, okay. And then we'll monkey with it. You got tools on there. You can make you look better than you really are. We must love genuinely. Maybe you've experienced fake love. Can I tell you, it ain't fun, is it? It's heartbreaking. You feel like a fool. And, and, and what God wants from his people is not an Instagram image. He wants his people to love. And he says you need to love genuinely. Love does not focus on the external. It focuses on the internal. You may see someone's external need, but you're not going to stop there. You're going to go until you find out what their internal need is. And you say, well, how would I know that? You always know that. It's Jesus. Jesus is the need in every person's life. See, God loves us to the depths of our depravity. He cleanses us. He sets us free. You say, but yes, pastor, some people are difficult to love. There's a Hebrew word for that. Duh. <laughs> and especially if you're married. 
Duh! That's not, that's not rocket science, folks. This is where God's love appeals to us that we offer ourselves by what? The mercies of God, verse 1 of chapter 12 says, that we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. And can I tell you something? Love's going to cost you. Love anybody, it'll cost you. Let your heart love someone, and I'm telling you, they can break your heart. That baby that is so precious right now will be precious to you for all of your life. And I don't care what they do or where they go, but I'm telling you, they can take you to the end of your rope. They can break your heart. And you're not going to stop loving them because of that. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells a story of a man who owed his boss 10,000 talents. That's a, a measurement of, of, of coinage, if you will, of, of, of wealth. And, and so he owed 10,000 talents. Essentially, scholars tell us it's the size of most nations' national debt. Uh, Herod owed 900 talents in tax revenue, gained every year 900 talents of tax re revenue. This guy owed 10,000 talents. He could not pay that off in 10,000 lifetimes. But I want you to see something. That man forgave him of every bit of it. Now, that's a powerful story in Scripture because this is what it's teaching us. The forgiveness, forgiveness is as spectacular as your debt. How great is your debt? How great is your sin debt? So, man, I've, you, you don't want to know. I, I don't have to know, but God knows. Amen? What did he forgive you of? And the Bible tells us that as spectacular as our debt is, this man forgave. But guess what the man did? He went out and found a man who owed him about a day's wage. He grabbed him by the throat, and he drug him to debtor's prison. And Jesus said, this is not right. So what is he telling us? In Matthew 18.35, he also says, your heavenly father, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It's never enough to say, I forgive you. When in fact, down inside your heart, you're still bitter. You haven't resolved it. The scripture is clear. John Piper put it this way. If we claim to be forgiven by Jesus, but there is no sweetness of forgiveness or patience or love in our hearts for others, God's forgiveness is simply not there. It's just not there. I am not suggesting that you become a better pretender. I'm not suggesting that you become a better denier of the reality of your unforgiveness. I suggest you confess your unforgiveness, and at the point you say, God, I can't forgive that person for the horrible thing they did to me, say, God, I can't, but I believe you can, and I ask you to forgive these people through me. Corey Ten Boom was one of those victims of the Nazi Holocaust. She was hauled off with her sister and her family to a concentration camp because they were hiding Jewish people in their homes. And, and so she, her sister died in one of those prisons. She survived. Years later, in the late 1950s, early 1960s, she was preaching in a church in Germany when the guard who used to Google at her, not, not the computer Google, would stare at them when they were taking showers, would make lewd suggestions to them, would torment them. Suddenly, he's walking down the aisle at the end of the service, and he reaches out his hand to her, and he said, my sister... I am now a believer in Jesus Christ. He said, you spoke of forgiveness. As he held out his hand, he said, do I get forgiveness too? And she said, I was paralyzed. I couldn't move. 
I didn't know what to do. She said, it brought out something in me I didn't know was still there. She said, I felt the anger and the resentment. It was like everything in prison had flashed over me again. And she said, Lord, what do I do? She goes, Lord, I can't do this. Would you love this man through me? And she said, the moment I asked that, I felt a tingling power in my shoulder that went all the way down to my hand, and I felt my arm lifting up. He grabbed my arm and said, the moment we touched, said suddenly the power of God set me free from the bitterness of all of the pain and suffering that I went through. Love genuinely. Can I tell you, Jesus cannot help the fake you. He will not help the fake you. He'll only help the real you who's hurting and broken and has been abused and is struggling to say, Lord, by your grace and your grace alone was I forgiven, and by your grace and grace alone can I be forgiving to others. Love genuinely. Number two, Paul says this. He says, love truthfully. Verse 9, he says, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. That word abhor means to hate bitterly. That's a strong feeling. That we should have a, if you will, hatred of evil. That we run from evil and that we run to what is good. When you love someone, you, you will inevitably face a moment when you must tell the truth to them. A parent who cannot bring themselves to love their child enough to discipline them. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about physical discipline only. Sometimes that's necessary, but to restrict them, to teach them that life is, is, is going to be better when you have a disciplined life, self-discipline, or a mate who uh, is afraid to disturb a very shaky relationship, or a friend who has a need for a friend more than, than the risk of telling that friend what they really need to hear. And love requires that we speak the truth to one another in love. Now, you meet people, and I do, I meet people all the time, who tell me that they are truth-tellers. But the problem is they don't tell the truth in love. In other words, it should cost you something to tell someone. In other words, it should cost you pain and prayer and seriousness about, and maybe even wise counsel from spiritual leaders before you go approach it trying to straighten somebody else out. Jesus said, get the log out of your eye before you get the splinter out of somebody else's eye, right? And log and the splinter are made of the same material. It's wood. So whatever they're struggling with, you may, oh, I see very clearly. Well, it's because you do the same thing. And so Jesus said, let's reckon with this. Let's deal with this first. In Ephesians 4.15, rather speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head of Christ, into Christ. You see, if we won't tell someone the truth in the name of the Lord, it's just self-love. Jesus loved us enough to tell us the truth, amen? And he got killed for doing that. Friend, that was a part of God's plan. Here's the third way, the third directive. Paul says, love faithfully. Look at verse 10. He said, love one another with brotherly affections. Paul does something really interesting here. He's a genius. But Paul takes two Greek words for love, philo that I mentioned earlier, and storge, and he combined them together in this sentence. He said, love one another with brotherly affections love or affection. So he takes family love and he takes a deep friendship love. Did you know the Bible says in Proverbs that there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother? Did you know the Bible says that a friend was made for difficult times? So, so you can have a friend that is closer than family. 
But what he's saying, and the reason he combines these together is he's talking about the deep work that God does in the church. Some of you have been bereft of family since you've come to faith in Christ. Well, guess what? That may change. Don't give up on them. Don't stop praying for them, even if they reject you or mock you. But listen to me. God's given you a family in church. And the deeper you go together with the Lord, the deeper you love one another, the more you're going to see God's provision in your life. He gives us what we need. Um, And we all come from some kind of a jacked-up family, don't we? What's its hallmark? The hallmark of brotherly love and family love is that we don't give up on each other. We don't give up on each other. In a family, one person's problem becomes everybody's problem. In a family or deep friendship, love does not have to be reciprocal. If your kids don't love back, you're not going to stop loving them, even though that may break your heart. C.S. Lewis said, love is never wasted, for its value does not rest upon its reciprocity. In other words, it doesn't rest upon somebody giving it to you back. This is what God wants his church to be. The question is, is this who we are? Loving this church, and listen to me, friend, I'm going to just tell you something, that you're a young church, and I've been around a long time. You will go through things, just get ready, that will test your love. Will test your love. I'm not trying to scare you, I'm just telling you the truth. You say, why does God let that happen? Because he wants your love to grow strong. Love's the easiest thing in the world to say, but it can be challenging to do. You with me? So the church is God's forever family, and you, you show up. Why? Because them people's my kin. <laughs> Those people are mine. I'm theirs. We love one another. We support one another through thick or thin. When somebody gossips about a church member, you need to say, whoa, whoa, we don't do that here. So I say, well, I want to tell you, I have a problem with so-and-so. Well, go tell so-and-so. Now, you got a problem with me? Come talk to me because we're going to work this out. And this is so important. You say, why is it important? Because for the mission of this church, this passage tells us you've got to love one another so that the world can see that love and say, I want that love. They're not getting it at the casinos. They're not getting it at the workplace. They're not getting it at the the top of the heap of the corporate world. People aren't feeling this anywhere else, but they can experience it in the church. Here's the fourth love. Love respectfully. Now I want to tell you, your pastor's on this. He's on this. It says in verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor. You see, if you want, amen, give the Lord praise. If you want something to be competitive about, this is it. If you want to be competitive about football, that's cool. Roll tide. If you want to be, come on. I, I saw a poor guy on the airplane with an Ohio, Ohio State cap on. I, I stopped and just had a prayer over him for a moment. I, but anyway, you want to be competitive about baseball, pick your team. If you want to be competitive about anything, but the body of Christ is to be competitive about showing honor to one another. I'm going to tell you one of the reasons we have difficult racial issues in this country of all kinds of races is because we've got a certain amount of people in this country who don't respect and honor people who aren't like them. They don't respect and give honor to someone because they don't look like me or think like me or vote like me. 
And this has got to stop, folks. It's got to stop in the church. Honor, honor, the result of true affection and respect for another person is that you honor them. In old Europe, they honored people because of their pedigree or their nobility. Watch Downton Abbey if you don't know what I'm talking about, all right? In America, it's based on success. Who's got the most? Who can keep the most? Who can do the most? Who can run the fastest? But biblically, it is based on one thing, the imago Dei, the Latin word that means you were made in the image of God. The reason a child in the womb has value is because he was made in the image of God. The reason you have value regardless of your skin color, where you grew up, or what you've done, or who your daddy was, or even though you don't know who your daddy was. You were made in the image of God. You say, no, I was a mistake. No, two adults may have made a mistake, but you were purposed by God before the world began. (laughs) Treating one another like the people of God is what draws people to Christ. The church at Rome had a reputation of being this kind of church. It had a reputation of, come on, come on, brother. It it had a reputation. I love you, man. I love it. I I told Kathy today, I said, I'm tired of preaching to people who can take it and leave it. I sense Walk Church wants to take it. You hold on to that. That's secret sauce right there, guys. That's a superpower right there. You hold on to that stuff. You come here hungry. I know this man feeds you. And I'm just here to tell you, you come here hungry, you'll never, you'll never leave dissatisfied. But if you come with a bitter heart full of all kinds of she said, he said, this, that, and the other, I'm just going to tell you, it's going to mess you up. You're going to walk out going, I, I'm bored with church. You can't be bored with Jesus if you've ever heard of who he really is. The church in Rome had a reputation of being like this. The church was the only place for the poor It was the only place for the refugee, for the immigrant, for people of noble rank and no rank. The first pro-life movement began in Rome because what they would do is if a baby was born and the parents didn't want it, it wasn't the right sex or it wasn't the right color or it wasn't this or whatever, they would take it and they would throw it out. They would put it on their doorstep or they would take it out in the woods and just leave it. Christians would walk around at night listening for the cries of babies that they would take into their own homes. And Rome was doing that. Our culture puts the wrong values on the wrong things. I'm so proud. Joseph was a youth pastor at Dayspring Baptist Church in Mobile. And I'm so glad he's here. We, we miss him in Mobile. Those people out there hurt, man. They do. But they, listen, they're going on. They're going on. They, there's another guy stepped right in his place. But I'm just here to tell you, God called him to this city. Now, but I want you to know something. They did something, and our student ministry did something. I don't know how much we coordinated together, but ours was called the Joy Dance. It happens around Christmas time, usually. And the Joy Dance is where special needs teenagers and adults come to a prom for them. And I'm telling you, you haven't seen dancing in a Baptist church like they do. It's just incredible. And like our students do. And there's a generation that wasn't like my generation. That was so uncool in my generation. But there's a generation that doesn't care because they see the Imago Day. They see the difference that God makes. Here's the fifth one quickly. You guys, you guys aren't listening fast enough, so I'm going to have to move. So number, number five, love respectfully. But number four, number five, love optimistically. Look at verse 11. There's a bunch of stuff in this. He says, do not be slothful in your zeal. 
slothful. Have you ever seen a sloth? They move. There's a commercial. I think a Geico commercial with a sloth in it, right? So there's a sloth that just moves slow. Don't be slow to love. Let me just give my mom and dad. My dad was an alcoholic. My dad was a family abuser. He was a chief boatswain's mate in the United States Navy. He, he went from World War II to Korea to Vietnam. And in the late 1960s, he was getting ready to do another hitch in Vietnam. We were sick and tired of his drunkenness. We were sick and tired of all of it. My mom was ready to leave him. But a guy in a grocery store shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with my dad, and he got saved. He got set free and delivered and healed of his alcoholism. And he became a radical for Jesus, radical in the best way possible. So my dad had a dramatic life change. So in that process, what we began to know is that the gospel can change anything. And, and I began to see that gospel changes people. So my mom and dad, on any given Sunday in the churches, I've only pastored two churches, and they were members of both of them. I, I tried to leave them in Arizona, but they followed me to Alabama, all right? So but every, they worked the crowd, hiding. They worked the crowd. They see people coming in. Hey, hey, they're over there talking to them. They're, they're getting to know them. They invite them to their home. They're, they're, they're bringing them in. These are visitors. They don't know who they are. They could be hatchet murderers. They don't care. What are you going to do to me? I'm going to heaven. Now, you should have seen what I was. You should see what I am now. They love telling people about Jesus. My mom still works her neighborhood all the time. Now, my dad's in heaven now. You know what the last, my, the last words my dad spoke to me was on a Sunday afternoon. I had to fly from Mobile to, uh, to Idaho. I went to see him, and I thought this may be the last time. Sure enough, within 12 hours, he was gone. He looked at me. First thing he said is, did anybody get saved at church today? <laughs> and, 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 and listen, I'm going to challenge everybody in this room right now. What would happen if everyone here saw it as their mission to, to, to see new people walking in the door and just love them? Say, Man, we're glad you're here. We just want you to know what this means to us, that you would come to be with us. You, you need anything? You need some water? You need to know where the bathroom is? I'll help anything you need. We're here to help. Sit with us. Sit with us. What are y'all doing at lunch today? Why don't you go eat lunch with us? And you can't maybe do that every week, but man, be friendly. Take sections of the church. Make them yours. And start praying for those people to get saved. Whew. Love optimistically. Do not be slothful in your zeal, but fervent in spirit, he says. Verse 11, serve the Lord. Verse 12, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Love optimistically. You see, there's no one who's too far gone. You believe that? There's no one who's too far gone. Kathy and I recently had dinner with a couple that uh, we brought down to the beach to have a vacation time. There's some new church planners that we just started working with in the Washington, D.C. area. He told us his testimony. He came to the United States as a teenager because, brother, he, he from Columbia because he was going to be a drug dealer. No, he said, I'm going to be a kingpin. He said, I'm going to be a kingpin. So I came up here. I had some connections there. I figured I'd settle in, get to know everything, and then I'm going to start doing some stuff, some deals. I'm going to start bringing drugs in the United States. He's at this bar where he meets his wife. Now, they, they didn't get married. Remember, they lived together for a long time. But her uncle invited them to hear the gospel at a church. They both went. They were curious. Somebody invited them. They went. Man, they loved the music. The music was awesome. But when the gospel was preached, Jefferson came under conviction. And got saved. He fell in love with Jesus. She didn't. Carol said, no, I'm not, I, I'm not into that. And so guess what happened? One day he got under conviction of, of living in sin. He said, we can't keep living together. We need to get married. And she got mad and threw him out. 
She says, you're just trying to get rid of me. I don't know how she got that, but that's what she thought. <laughs> Finally, she came to the Lord. I'm telling you, they are on fire and winning people to Christ, and they're one of our church plants. God can save a kingpin. No one's too far gone. And by the way, no circumstance, you will never face a circumstance that's too difficult for God. Amen? I don't care who, who it is. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, that, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's not in vain to love people. It's not in vain to show the love of people to this community. You'll help one another when you're afflicted. By the way, when someone in this church suffers loss, death, death touches their family, you don't have to give answers. Can I tell you in the moments of death from my own experience, the answers people tried to give me, I, I wasn't ready to hear. You know what means everything? You're there. What can I do for you? I'm here. You can't stop crying. They don't care. Don't be put off by people's tears. Tears are a gift from God. The Puritans used to say that. They're part of God's grace when we are able to weep. Jackson Brown couldn't understand why he couldn't cry anymore. So, here's the final one, number six. The final directive of love is to love tangibly. Verse 13 says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Contribute, contribute. There will be needs that people have that God has already provided you the resources to help them with. So be generous. But one of the greatest generosities that goes unrecognized in our culture is hospitality. The word hospitality is where we get the word hospital from. Isn't that interesting? So you, you, you have a need, a brokenness, a wound, and somebody loves you. I'm not, I'm not talking about a physical wound. I'm talking about an emotional wound, a spiritual wound. And somebody loves you enough to bring you in, to take care of you, to let you talk about it, to, to help you see a better way, to help you see the Lord and his purpose in their life, to just love them tangibly. The English word is derived from that word hospital. It's really where we get the word good Samaritan. It comes from that story of someone who stops and he does what he can. Do you know the first aid is the best aid? Because it's first. You say, well, I don't know what I'm doing, but you, you're there. There were two men, highly respected men in the community, a priest and a, and a Levite, who both saw the man in the ditch bleeding and unconscious, but they walked the other way. They looked away. That's what a lot of people are doing today. Even in the church, they're just looking away. I don't want to see this. But friend, when you see it, the old Samaritan coming along on his little donkey, his little burl, <laughs> he comes along and he, he sees this man. I, I got to believe, Hayden, I got to believe that that man had been in that ditch or some ditch like it at some point. Wow. He had a compassion for him. He saw him. He got down. He bound up his wounds. He stopped the bleeding. He put him on the donkey. He put oil on him and wine on him. He took him to a, to a Hampton Inn and he checked him in. Because all the hospitals were full of COVID people. So he put him in there and he told the king keeper, he said, man, take care of him. When I get my donkey back, we're coming back to check on him. And if, if he's run up a bill, I'll take care of it. Listen to what Emperor, Emperor Julian said, the Roman Emperor Julian said about Christians. 
He said, it's a scandal. It is a scandal that there is not a single stranger who is a beggar and that, is a, and that the godless Galileans, that's what he called Christians. He thought, thought we were godless because we didn't have 10,000 gods. We only had one god, and it was, a, it was a Galilean, a carpenter. Amen? And he said that these godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should have rendered to them. Isn't that amazing? What will they say in Las Vegas, Nevada? When there's a need in this city and Walk Church steps up. And you're not walking away from the problem, but you're there. When, what, when, when everybody else is walking out, Walk walks in. What will they say in this city, in your community, when they say, we could not exist without this church? In, in my region of the country, people drive by, hundreds of thousands people drive by because we're on an interstate and, and on, a, on a state highway. Hundreds of thousands of people drive by, and most of them never give a thought to us. I wonder if we're really as critical as we think we are. But, oh, my friend, when the church is doing the church, when the church is being the church gathered and then the church scattered all over the community, it makes a difference in the community. That's what God's calling you to do. This kind of community is what the world needs. It's what Jackson Brown was looking for. Doctor, my eyes tell me what you see. I hear their cries. Just say, it's not too late for me. And Dr. Jesus would say, Jackson, it's not too late for you. In Acts 17.30 says, the time of ignorance, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Is there something God has pointed out to your heart tonight that you need to repent of? What, what is God saying to you? How will you respond to him? The Bible says to know to do good and not to do it is sin. So what is God saying? Maybe, maybe he's saying, I, I want you to stop putting your toe in the pool at Walk Church. I want you to dive in. You may have gone through a membership class, but, but you've been holding back. You've been protecting your time. And I'm not saying that's all wrong. But it's time to dive in wholeheartedly. So let's take this town. Let's do this. For the glory of God. Do you need to trust him as your savior? As I said early this morning, the gospel is simple. It's glorious. It's amazing. Jesus Christ lived the life I was supposed to live but failed to live. You see, you can't work your way to heaven, friend, because you don't have it in you. I don't have it in me. I'm not going to heaven because I'm a preacher. Lord, have mercy. I'm going to heaven because of what Jesus did next. He lived the life I was supposed to live but failed to live, and then he died the death I deserved to die in my place. And I, realizing that, said, Jesus, I can't save myself. Would you save me? And he saved me, and he'll save you. He'll save you. He'll take a drunk daddy and transform him. I never went to church. I never darkened the door of a church until my dad got saved, and when I heard the gospel, I got saved. Have you been saved? Ask Christ into your heart. Just right now. Put it in your own words. He understands your language. He understands your heart cry. And he'll answer your prayer. With heads bowed and eyes closed, would you ask God to renew the work of Walk Church? That every member of this church would walk in a gospel ministry? 
that we would love tangibly, that we would love with optimism and hope, that we would be so respectful that the competition at Walk Church would be to outdo one another in honor, that we would love faithfully one another, that we would love truthfully as truth-tellers, that we would love genuinely from the heart. Lord, be glorified as your people respond to your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you.